Well, this is your first time. I'm Tyler. We're in uh, a series titled The Good News. Everybody say good news. good news. We're closing it out today, and the title of the message is The Good News, Happiness Redefined. Now, Jesus did define it, but I think culture has tried to hijack it because God's a creator and Satan's a perverter. So this thing of happiness is not a cultural idea. It's actually a promise from heaven, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But I want you to answer a question to see even where you're starting from. It's always good to know where we start from. And so as I say this, I want you to answer in your head. You don't, don't answer out loud. That would be weird. Um, but how have you defined happiness? Finish this sentence in your head. I'll be happy when... Dot, dot, dot. I'll be happy when... Fill in the blank to yourself. What is that answer? If we pulled the room, there would be a lot of different answers. I wrote down a handful that I've just heard from a lot of people. I'll be happy when I get a spouse. You soon find out that you actually are sometimes more miserable than you were before. <laughs> just keeping it real. I'll be happy when I get kids. Same, same. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what were we thinking? I haven't slept in months, you know. I'll be happy when I get a promotion. I'll be happy when I win the lottery. I'll be happy when I retire. If you are living for retirement, you have missed it. Your whole life, so you can just end it that way? No, that is not why you're alive. So Jesus comes on the scene, and I, I'm going to go to the first book of the Gospels. The good news is birthed out of the Gospels, four books in the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First three books of the Synoptic Gospels, similar. Last one is John. It's about 20% similar, but they're all eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And the good news is Jesus. That's the good news. Jesus came and died the death that we were supposed to die. He lived the life we should have lived and then paid a price we couldn't pay. So we can now live a life empowered by the Spirit to do things we never could do and receive things we never thought we could receive. This is the good news. So I thought for the last one, I was going to go to the very first book of good news, go to the very first sermon and look at the very first word that Jesus says. And that word is blessed. Blessed. Now, a Greek word is makarios. And that Greek word makarios actually means happy. You'll find it 40 plus times in the New Testament. Jesus, catch this. The last word in the Old Testament is cursed. It's the last word in the Old Testament. It's cursed. Jesus comes on the scene. The first word he says is blessed, happy. He doubles down on it. He says it nine times. Happy, happy, happy. And all these paradoxical statements. Simply saying there's a new sheriff in town. The good news has arrived. If you looked at the law, 39 books of the law, it just kept on pointing to our sickness, that we could never match it. It was this thing where it showed that we needed a Savior. But the law does not save us. It just points that we need a Savior. And I was looking at my Instagram. I follow some business accounts. I love uh, leadership. So it was one of my leadership things. And this popped up this week while I was preparing my message. I thought it was funny. And it was Warren Buffett, the seven things you need to do to be happy. I was like, oh, that's all I have to do, Warren Buffett. Teach me. Um, so this is his advice to you and I. These are his seven for Warren Buffett. Don't show off was his number one. Number two was talk less. Number three was learn daily. Number four was help the less fortunate. Number five was laugh more. Number six was ignore nonsense. And number seven was no entitlement. And I came to this conclusion, if I could just be honest. The world has way too many people giving good advice and not enough of the church proclaiming the good news. Good advice is not going to change your life. Good advice is not going to change your happiness meter. It's not going to change your salvation. Good advice is everywhere right now. And to be honest, it's the blind leading the blind. 
And so Jesus comes on the scene and he declares this thing and it's titled The Good News. He comes to the blind people, the bankrupt, the dead, the ones that need to be born again, and he declares not good advice, but the good news, and the first thing he decides to preach on is happiness. And the religious people already, if you're in the room, you're already like, hold on a second. I'm going to unpack it for you. You're about to get owned, religious people. Say what? Self-righteous. Jesus is the only one that's righteous. And so we're going to look at the Beatitudes. We're going to look at the rhythm of the Beatitudes. Because if you look at what I just said, I'll be happy when, they're all external. I'll be happy when I get a promotion. I'll be happy when I get married or kids or, or retire. They're all external answers. Happiness is not found in the external. It's actually found when Jesus does something different in the internal part of our life and our soul. It has to be birthed from the inside out. It's not found on the outside. Will you bow your heads with me? So Father, I thank you for what you're going to do today. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you came and proclaimed the good news in our life. And now we can respond and say, yes, we want this life that you promised. We want to be saved. Thank you for not sending a condemner, but a savior. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love you. And everybody said? Now, just to make it clear, the Beatitudes is not the blueprint on how to get saved. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said it best. If you could summarize Jesus' ministry in two words, it was believe and blessed. Believe and be blessed. So the first thing you have to do, so, so this context of the Beatitudes, it's even talking to somebody who just got saved. You can title it New Life. This is right when your new life starts. And this is, there's no accident where Jesus starts in this Matthew 5 teaching of blessed are the poor and then blessed are the meek and uh, um, those who mourn, excuse me, then the meek and then hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's no accident here. So we're going to watch Jesus not redefine happiness. We're actually going to go back and see him define it for us. Because culture has tried to hijack what, really what it means to have a full life. Because makarios, the, 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 the word blessed makarios, the root word car is joy. You'll find this throughout scripture everywhere. And so God is holy but he's also happy. God's holy, but he's also happy. Is that okay with you today? Okay, let's keep going. Let's read the Bible. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, let's go to the Word. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Stop. What a great moment this is even. Jesus, with his omniscient eyes, he sees this massive crowd. And Jesus was not trying to build a crowd because if he wanted to build a crowd, he would have stayed where he was, but instead he actually climbed the mountainside. And it's fascinating to me because you look throughout the Bible, I love rhythms in the Bible. The rhythm of Mount Sinai where, where Moses got the law on the mountain. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, the law was given on the mountain, and now I'm going to give you this promise of your new life also on a mountain. I came to fulfill the law with the blessed life. This is Jesus' moment. He's showing people. But what I find interesting is when he's climbing this mountain, it says his disciples came. The whole crowd didn't come. I want to say this to anybody who you've been attending church. There's an open invite for you because Jesus knows that the church is special when it goes from crowd to core, when it goes from crowd to the church. You're not called to be part of the crowd in the church. You're called to be a part of the core of the church. This is where you hear the teachings of God. This is where you're in the community of God. You're in a small group. You're serving. You're pre-service prayer. You're going to a missions trip with people. That is actually when life gets really good at church. If you're in the crowd of the church, church will get boring within a year or two because it's just this thing you do. You're not supposed to do church. You are the church. Open invitation. Come climb the mountain with us. Does that sound good? Okay. So he goes on to say, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I first got saved, and again, uh, Jesus saved my life, I tried to overcome sin in my own strength. 
I'll okay, I'm saved, and now I need to do these five things, and just get rid of these five things, and then I'll be good. That's what I thought to myself, okay? And so I remember going to church, and I would worship, and then I would try not to sin, and then I would sin, and I felt like the Lord was done with me for the week. I even thought, like, did I just lose my salvation? Am I not going to have the life I wanted? I just sinned. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is, blessed are those who realize they're poor, for the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. Here's what he's saying to you and what he's saying to me. Happy are those that realize that they cannot do life in their own strength. Once you get saved, it's not that Jesus is some person that's a, a like, you know, side dish that you just come to and ask for your needs. Actually, you realize, I don't come to Jesus with my needs. I need Jesus. This is the whole flip. Don't come to Jesus with your needs. Just say, Jesus, I need you, and I need you to lead me. Catch this real quick. Sin is not some addictive behavior. Sin is not just some rhythm in your life. Sin is a power, the Bible says. It is a power in your life that has authority over your life. Like Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I do do. And he talks about sin having this power and then death having this power. And then Jesus came down on the cross so it would lose its thing and lose its power. So then how do you stop doing things you're not supposed to be doing that steal from your life? You need somebody who has more power than sin. And his name is Jesus, the Holy Spirit. You need to be empowered to overcome things, not in your own strength. And so the first thing he says, happy are those who realize they're poor and realize they can't do life on their own. Have you ever met anybody religious? Man, they are just grumpy and gloomy. They're just, they're not happy. I haven't met a lot of happy religious people. I just haven't. Actually, it's about over a billion, okay? <laughs> they're just always frustrated with people and themselves because they have their list of five that they're trying to do on their own, but they're just bankrupt. There's no joy in their life because they're just policing themselves and others. Instead of praising God, they're policing. Happier are those who realize they're poor and they can't do life on their own. Amen? So let's just be unpacking scripture real quick. We're not even into the points. Um, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. And again, let's just say happy. Can I say happy today? Because that's what the Greek word makarios means, happy, okay? So happy are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. That makes no sense. How many people do you see mourning like, I'm just so happy right now? It's just, again, paradoxical. It's going to make sense. Like, happy are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Happy are the, the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Stop. So many people today are just empty, unsatisfied. You get two people who are empty. They're poor in grace. They're poor in love. They're poor in truth. And they get married to another person who's poor in truth, poor in grace, poor in uh, the power of God. And they both get married like, okay, I was poor now, but I just married my spouse. And now I'm going to be rich in love, rich in great times. I just saw the movies. It's going to happen for me. All you're doing is putting two broke people together. And it gets really frustrating when you're both broke. So Jesus says, blessed are those who realize that their sin is destroying their own life. Have you ever seen people just blame everybody except themselves? They take the light, is what I call it, and they just point it on everybody. Well, if my spouse would just do this, well, if my church would just do this, if my, if my boss would just do this, and then Jesus says, I'm the light, and that light isn't for you to use it to point at people, it's actually to go, oh, I'm mourn, I'm broken. I've got rejection wounds. I've got wounds from pastors and friends and fathers and mothers, and it makes me act a certain way in this world, and it mourns. It makes me mourn because I'm missing out on actually the way I'm supposed to live my life. The light points to your brokenness. And if you ever want to become whole, happier are those who actually realize they need wholeness is really what this is saying. Happier are those that actually find out they are in bondage. Happier are those that realize, oh my gosh, I'm in a prison cell and I never knew it. Happier are those that realize, oh my gosh, I've been bleeding out in all these wounds and I've just been blaming everybody else, but now I understand that there's a God that can actually comfort these wounds and actually bring wholeness to these wounds. Happier are those who realize this in their life. 
Your marriage will never get good when you fix your spouse. Your marriage is going to get good when you actually become everything God called you to be. We're trying to fix everything and everybody instead of being restored by the one that wants to restore us. Happy are those who mourn, okay? Happy are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. And happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I love the word, uh, the, the word uh, it says the name, for they will be filled. That's a Greek word. It literally means to gorge yourself. Like, what a funny word. All these words are on purpose, by the way. All of them. Like, why would the Lord use this Greek word, gorge? Because when you actually get two people who have mourned over their brokenness and had God restore them and are restoring them, you have two people now that have grace. They're like, hey, I'm not okay. You're not okay. Let's be okay with it. Is that cool? And let's grow on the journey. Instead of having this perfection bar for people. So now they, they have this different view on people. They have more of a meekness and humility. Instead of coming in prideful and arrogant like they have the answers on how to fix you, they both go, man, I, I just need just as much help as you do. And then after that, but they come in satisfied and full with Jesus so they don't come to you wanting everything for you to actually give to them. So instead of two broke people getting married, imagine two people overflowing getting married. Imagine two friends becoming friends that are overflowing. They're so full on Jesus. They're gorged. They're so full that now that they don't want to take from you, they actually want to give to you. It'd be like if I had my favorite meal on the planet, Dino's Pizza. If I had my favorite meal on the planet, Dino's Pizza in front of me. And to be honest, at the very beginning, it's hard for me to share because I'm worried that you're going to take some that I can't have another one of, okay? But what happens is I get really generous at Dino's Pizza once I'm full. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm super full. I'm like, hey, you want a slice of my pizza? Like you would do that? Oh, help yourself. I just can't eat anymore. That's all. I'm actually not that generous. And what happens with us is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus, for they will be filled. You get so filled on joy, so filled on mercy and grace, that now instead of trying to get it from people, you're like, I'm so full on it, I just need to give to, I got leftovers, who do I give it to? Happy are those that give these things to the people of God. Goes on to show, this isn't my message, it's going to be an hour, I'm sorry. Um, I geeked out this week studying, I just loved it so much, so just bear with me. Um, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. So, so I want you to see the rhythm here real quick. So in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who realize they're poor, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So the first rhythm is you look up, and you see God, and you realize how poor you really are, how bankrupt you are, because he's full of life, and this world is full of death. And so you finally see it, and then after that, you look in and you mourn over what this culture has done and how much brokenness you have. And so then God does inner work in you. But then after that, what I love about the Beatitudes, you look up, you look in, and then it starts to affect how you actually treat people on the outside, it shows. So it's kind of the, the process of almost sanctification in your new life of salvation. It says, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So once you start actually living for God and start actually living the business of God, you start to see God do things in your life you never thought you could do. You start seeing him doing things at your church you never thought you could do, in your workplace, because you start praying for people. You start being kind to people. And it says, blessed are the pure in heart, because now your motives are not to just use people, but you see them as gold. And so you celebrate more. It just becomes this fruit product of what's happening in the root of your life. It goes on to say, happy are those who are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. It changes your identity. How happy would you, you, would you be if you could actually throw off the yoke of what culture has told you what you're supposed to be? The, the yoke of culture, what has told you that you're not, and actually becoming a new identity, being a son and daughter of the living God. And not only that, you live the business of God, you're actually bringing peace to people because really there was wrath with God and man. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker, brought this uh, new, new uh, toward the veil. So now there's peace between us and God, and now we're supposed to be the same thing as Jesus, bring peace between each other and between God. That, that's, that's what Christians do. We don't bring division. We don't bring religion. We don't bring self-righteous. No, we bring the peace of God to people. And then, then it, what happens, though, if you're just going to be, I'm just going to be honest, blessed are those who persecute you. 
Happy are those who persecute? I don't get that. Happy are those? But this doesn't make sense. Because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You start to become happy because really, in this world, it becomes actually what it is to you. It's not your home. It's not your home. I loved Paris. I loved Florence. I'm just going to be honest. I loved it. But on day 15, when I was getting on the plane, I couldn't wait to come home. Nothing, no, there's no place like home. I don't live in a mansion. I live in a duplex. It's keeping it real, but I'm still excited to come home. Now, when you start to actually understand heaven, the Lord says, do not be troubled, do not be worried, for there are many rooms. My God is preparing a house for you. You start to live, and I realize, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't why I'm alive. I've got to... I get to go home one day? I'm being persecuted. I'm getting closer to actually real home, real blessing, real wholeness, where there will be no tears. goes on to say, Happy are you when, you, uh, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Another word that you can use for rejoice is be happy, be glad. goes on to say, Because of the great is your reward in heaven. From the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, the prophets that were before you. So I started looking at the disciples, studied all, how all 12 of them died. And I thought it was fascinating what was recorded in Andrew's life. Andrew was whipped by soldiers, and then he was crucified on a, a, a cross that was like an X. And for two days, he stood there, and people record this is what he was saying as he was being crucified. I have long desired this happy hour, this Makarios hour. For two days, he preached this. I have long desired this happy hour. Can I just be honest as your pastor? Let alone being whipped and crucified, I would not be able to say that. I don't say it sometimes when somebody comes up to me after service and says the music's too loud. I'm like, you will say what? Why God, this is so hard. We set up, we tear down, and then the first thing I hear after service is they don't like the music, I'm done. I'm not there yet. I'm like, happy are those who hear complaints at church. It's not there yet. I am not close to sanctified, but I desire it. I desire the day when I can get a complaint or an email and rejoice and be happy because I know that I did everything I was supposed to do to please God. You get really happy when you know that you're pleasing the right person. You get really unhappy when you feel like you're supposed to please everybody. You get really happy when you know you're actually making the best decision of your life. So many people I meet all the time, what am I supposed to do with my life? Am I supposed to marry this person, do this and do that? And they just agonize over it. And they always regret, oh, I think I should have done this instead. But one of the most happy decisions you can ever make in your life is, I know that I know that I know that this is what I'm supposed to live and die for. That's when real happiness comes into your life. So I'm going to give you uh, three tools. Three tools on, and even rhythms of how you should live your life in a rhythm every day. Every day, this is what you should do to stay happy internally. Okay. This is not like a one-time thing. You need to do this every day, and it's the rhythm of the Beatitudes. You need to look up, you need to look in, and then you need to look out. That is the rhythm that God shows throughout. I'm going to show the Old Testament a little bit at the very end of my conclusion. A little bit of trailer version for you. You're welcome. Um, and I just want you to know, know something real quick. The reason why I feel like I'm not there yet is I have allowed the world to seep in, and God wants to overflow my life, but I'm not full of heaven right now. I still got some worldly mindsets and junk in me. I just want you to know that. I was looking at Stephen's life. And Stephen in Acts 6, it says that, that Stephen was a, a man of God, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So he's full of faith. He was full. He was gorged. Faith and the Holy Spirit. You need to be full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Not full of your ideas, not full of your own idea. You, you need to be empowered, spirit-filled. 
goes on to say, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace. This is verse eight, grace and power. Not only was he full of that, he's full of grace and power. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. Goes on to say in Acts 7, but Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. You see a theme here? You can't be filled up by this world. The only thing that fills you is the Spirit of God. It's the only thing that will empower you and actually fulfill your life. He says he's full. So there's this rhythm of Stephen being full. And he goes on to say, looking up at heaven. This is where Stephen gets stoned to death, by the way. He's full, full, full. And now he gets rocks thrown at him. Worse than an email, worse than a complaint. Looking up to heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, I forgive the people who complain about sound right now. I forgive you, okay? Lord, I forgive it, the sin against them. When he has said this, he fell asleep. That's where the church gets really powerful. You look at the book of Acts and the church exploded. It wasn't because the people who were leading the charge were like, oh my gosh, they said, what about me? I'm out of here. No, they said, I'm proclaiming the gospel, stone throat. I don't care about the stone being thrown at me. I'm full of faith. I'm full of power. I'm full of love. I'm full of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to proclaim the good news to you. You can punch me in the face and I'm coming back the next day to say, God still loves you. You can sock me in the face again. I'm going to say, I don't think you get it. God loves you. You can punch me in the throat. I'll take a few more days after that one, okay? (laughs) And I'm going to come back and hand you a note from far away. Jesus still loves you. This is what the gospel does in your life. Once it gets a hold of you, it makes you a whole different person. It fills you up with a new purpose, not some side dish, not something that just happens in your life. It is what you're full of. And so when people try to get it out of you and you start to get squeezed by the world, it says that Stephen's faith, actually, his face shined like light because the light that made him mourn about himself now lived in him. And now that it lived in him, we started to live the life. People couldn't help but see a difference in him. And nothing would stop him from pleasing his God. No stone, no nothing. That's when the church gets dangerous in all the right ways. That's when the church gets actually really fulfilled and happy. It is not when you get comfortable and you run and you isolate. So let's look at these three rhythms. And just for fun, I just threw one verse in there for you. You're like, well, I get, I get that God said that happier are those who are poor, happier are those who are meek. I get that, but, but God's like not a happy God. You said he was happy earlier. There's no way there's a scripture that shows that. Let me show you, 1 Timothy 1.11. Uh, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Stop. That word blessed, makarios. That was entrusted to my happy God. Happy God. I almost feel like when you tell people that God's happy, they're like, don't you, di- don't you say that about him. He's, he's holy. That's it. Nothing else. Just holy. Okay? I mean, you better have reverence for God. And I feel like God's like, I put it in the Bible. I'm happy. Have you ever read what we say when people get saved? Heaven's more of a party than it is right now, to be honest. You think you die and go to church? No, you die and go to a party. It's a great banquet. We're talking, I mean, you think you've seen like celebrations for like Warriors championships? You have no idea how heaven likes the party. He's the king of the party. He's a happy God. And so I think his sons and daughters should also be happy, but happy from the things of heaven, not happy from the things of this world. Because the things of this world, they're fleeting. Have you ever seen somebody try to actually eat of this world and it's such a temporal happiness? You ever seen somebody go to their computer and go for pleasure and it's so fleeting and they feel terrible afterwards? Because it didn't actually satisfy your soul, it actually brought death more on your soul. And so you're like, man, why am I in this rhythm of my life right now? 
why do you keep staying in this rhythm of this world? Come and actually live the rhythm of heaven. So the first thing you need to do to stay happy every day is you need to look up. You need to look up. And what does it mean to look up? There are four groups in this time when Jesus is proclaiming the Beatitudes. There are the Essenes, there are the uh, Zealots, there are the Pharisees, and there are the Sadducees. These are the four groups, and they have all external ideas on how to be happy. So you have the Essenes. And I, to be honest, not, the Bible's so relevant. It even matches today. So here's what the Essenes would do. The Essenes would get away from everybody. They would create their own little environment on the outside, and they wanted to make sure that it, they, they were not a part of culture at all because culture is bad, but they, if they could find the right good people to be around, everything would be okay. If I could summarize the Essenes, they thought if they could control things, they would be happy. If I can just control my kid's life and my life and control the environment, control it, control it, a.k.a. if you could be God, because God's actually the one in control. He's sovereign. He's provident. You're not. But you want it because you think if I'm in control, I can create real happiness. So the scenes were trying to control to find their happiness. And then you have the zealots. The zealots were the, the political ones. They wanted to overthrow the rulers because they're like, oh, if we were in charge, everybody would be happy. Trust me, if you've ever had a bad boss or any boss, you realize that no human's going to be able to make you happy. We fail at it over and over again. This thing that they thought would make them happy, the zealots, I'll use this word, if I had the power, I'd be happy. If I had the power, if I was in charge, I would be happy. But I'm not in charge, so I'm not happy. But if I had power, I'd be happy. Again, this is an external thing. You're trying to get power from the world. And then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the law, followed the law, loved it so much that they actually added more law to the law. And they thought, if I could just follow the law and have everybody else around me follow the law, then I'll be happy and they'll be happy. We'll use this word for them, performance. If I can just perform at the right level in my life, if I can just meet my performance bar every day, if I can just meet my performance bar of righteousness, if I can just meet my performance bar of how I'm supposed to look on the outside, if my family could just be this kind of family on the outside, if I could perform, then I'll be happy. Performance is not how you find happiness. And then there's the Sadducees. They, they were the gangsters of this time, to be honest. They like picked and choose. They would reject all the bad things. No heaven, no hell. I mean, just reject everything, you know, uh, affluent. And so they really created an ideal world, and they were the authority on it. And really everything they were creating and pointing to was just pleasure. Life is to just be enjoyed in comfort and pleasure. And if I can just get pleasure to be the center of my life, I'll be happy. So if you're a person this time, and you're looking around culture, these are your options. Control, performance, power, or pleasure. Jesus comes on the scene, and I love how Spurgeon unpacks it in this moment in, in, uh, in Matthew 5. He says, you've got to understand that, that Jesus was here to feed the hungry. And we love the stories throughout the Bible where Jesus has a little bit of fish, a little bit of loaves, and he feeds thousands. But Jesus has spiritual eyes. He has spiritual eyes. With his spiritual eyes, he saw people who were starving in the spiritual he said, come with me to the mountainside. I'm about to give you everything that your soul desires. Can I just tell you real quick? The natural cannot satisfy the spiritual. The natural world cannot satisfy the hole that is in your heart that is spiritual. There's not enough in this world to satisfy that hole. It's a spiritual thing. It is of God. It is from heaven. You are a spiritual being. You're not just some worldly being. There is spirit a part of you. And so he takes them up and they look up. And I want you to catch this real quick. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And I wrote one of the biggest traps of defining happiness or success is when you look out instead of looking up. 
And so this is for you religious people, if you've actually been looking around church to make yourself feel better. Let's look at Luke 18. What does it look like for, and again, this is just one of your options. There's people in this room, this has been me in season of my life. I actually bent toward legalism my first like eight years of uh, ministry in church. I was so legalistic. I mean, you name it, I was like creating rules on rules because really every church has different rules. They're like, if we follow these rules, we're good. I was so rule-centric. I'll just tell myself, I was 19 years old and I was like, I'm not kissing until I'm married. I'm not gonna do it. Boom, rule. You know what? I didn't kiss for another 10 years until I met Rachel. Everybody go, oh. Yeah, that's the way I was built. It's, I, I'm, I'm so rule-centric. That's the way I'm built. The gospel exploded that bondage in my life because I created rule on rule to please God. God, I'm doing this for you. I was doing it for myself to be proud of myself. So Luke 18, it says this, a religious person and a person that needs Jesus. There's two pictures real quick, okay? So there's a person who realizes how poor they are and they need God, and there's another person who is self-righteous, they're religious, and they think they're doing pretty good. Here's what it says. To some who are confident of their own righteousness. You know what's raising hand, but anybody here in this room right now, you're pretty confident in your righteousness? You feel pretty good about like, how you live your life? You're like, hey, I'm, hey, I know I'm not the best guy, but I'm sitting next to Dan right now, and Dan is bad. So I'm pretty confident I'm getting in first. Like when we get to heaven, they're like, Dan, very back of the line, you're going to get in. But Tyler, come on up to the front. You're pretty confident in your righteousness? You're pretty confident in how you've lived your life? And you think Jesus is like, wow, you're amazing. You're so pure. That's what religious people think. They think they're doing so much better than everybody else. But I can just give you a picture real quick. We're all bankrupt before we know God. Trillions of dollars in bankruptcy. Now, trillions upon trillions, and the interest is just going like this. And self-righteous people, to be honest, they paid 100 bucks off. And Dan paid $10. And you think because you paid $90 more than Dan, you're like, I'm amazing. No, you're both still bankrupt going to prison. So this is, this is, this is the picture we have right here, okay? So some are confident in their own righteousness. They look down on, oh, oh I almost read fat past the one part I really want you to catch. Um, so to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Came out and said, they're religious people. They're looking down on people. And they think they're rich in their righteousness but they are so poor. They're so poor in joy, so poor in happiness, because they would look down on other people, and this is how they would put their bar in happiness, if I could just be better than these people. So two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, looking good, suited and booted. I mean, you name it, outside looking good, knows how to do the prayers, knows how to stand everything. A Pharisee and the other, a tax collector. Ta tax collector would be the one in society that people wouldn't talk to. This is the worst of the worst. It's kind of like, it would be, to be honest, on our level, a tax collector might as well be like, forgive me, it would, it would be like being a stripper in culture and you telling everybody and everybody knowing you are one. Like, this was something that if you are a traitor, a thief, it was, it was so obvious that you were not living the life you're supposed to live. Tax collector exploited their own people. The way they made money was they would take taxes from people and then take more for themselves. They were despised. They were the worst of the worst. So Jesus is using a parallel here. The worst of the worst that culture would think of, and then the best of the best that culture would think of. It goes on to say, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. You ever thank God that you're not like other people? Don't pray that prayer. Um, I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. I'm like, oh, thank God this is my life and not their life. It's not the right prayer. Don't get me wrong. Perspective is good, but that's not really where we should land or find happiness, okay? 
The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. You know, I mean, literally, I mean, like even during this time, this way he's praying, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. It's fascinating when you come to God and pray. If you come to God and pray with what you've done for him, instead of actually just praying and thanking for what he's did for you, you're probably pretty religious. If your motives are actually to impress God with what you've done, instead of actually to be compelled by what he did, it's just this little shift, but this is the paradox. Goes on. But the tax collector stood at the distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He was mourning. Oh, he couldn't even look up to heaven. He was mourning. Spiritually, he knew it. He saw it. He saw it. He, and again, why is he at this moment looking down? I believe he's looking down because he actually saw what, what he was. So he saw what he was. But beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I love it. It says, those who have been shown mercy will show mercy. Happy are those who have received mercy. It's one of the Beatitudes. And it goes on to say, and I love what Jesus says this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Who do you think is happy in church? The person with their prayers answered or the person with their prayers not answered? I love when my prayers are answered. And Jesus just said, the ones that come and understand they're bankrupt, their prayers are answered. The arrogant, religious, self-righteous, their prayers are not answered. Talk about being gloomy all the time. The first thing you have to understand is when you start your day, why, why we worship at church in the very beginning, it causes us to look up and see this name above all names, the king of all kings, and we look up and we say, our God is big. You got big problems, you got big debt, you got big worries, you got big opinions, you got big whatever, all these big things. I'm glad they're big. And then you look up and you're like, Man, these are small problems. These are small things. These are small accomplishments. Wow, I didn't realize how small they really were until I actually saw how big God was. We're always telling God how big things are in our life instead of actually realizing how big he is in our life. You will never be happy until you realize how big your God is. People are miserable because everything's so big. You ever meet the people that make twos, tens? Oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe it. I took my, I just got a brand new Range Rover 5,000 miles in and it broke down. Oh, it's terrible. That's not even on the, the spectrum of a two. It's a nothing. But you make those things so big instead of actually responding to the greatness of God and how big he is. You'll never find happiness. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who realize they're poor for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. AKA, when you realize how much you need Jesus. You got to look up every day. Amen. Then you have the cultural rich. Um, it's fascinating. So you could either look at the religious or culture. So there's two I'm going to look at. You look at the church to find happiness if it's doing the religious thing, or you look at culture. It's fascinating. I'm going to paraphrase this. But uh, the other thing you look at is Revelation 3, 17 through 20. And this is Jesus coming to a culture, and he says, you say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing, and you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. You say you're rich, but you're poor. But if you come to me, then you will be rich. This is the promise of God. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you'll not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. Oh, that God would actually give you eyes to see what your life could be with him. Instead of looking at the culture of the, the world and saying this is what they show that He's like, everybody around you, you think you're rich because you got the right robes and you got money? No, you're miserable, naked, and poor. If I'm being honest, the Bay Area, richest region in the U.S., miserable and poor. It's bankrupt relationally, emotionally. This is proven by studies. 
you look around and think, at least I'm doing better than my neighbor. Instead of in church, you're doing better than Dan in church. You look around and say, at least I got a better house than my neighbor. At least I finally got that car. My neighbor didn't get that new car. At least I got the promotion. And you look around at people and you navigate your life. I can just be happy if I can just get to this part, this class in our culture. Then I'll be happy. What's funny is, Jesus comes to promise you abundant life and we look at all the gold of this world, but when you look up to heaven, you find out in culture that the gold of this world is just dirt. It's garbage. Paul says it, rubbish, trash. And then you find out what real gold is. You ever hung out with somebody really rich? Like, not like, like, hey, you know, I you know, make half a million dollars a year. No, I'm talking like rich, rich. I heard a comedian talk about, like, you know, he's making good money, millions, but he was hanging out with Dwayne Wade. And Dwayne Wade was like, hey, we should go to Disneyland. And uh, so... They uh, went to Disneyland, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing the story, but basically, Kevin Hart wasn't this rich at this moment, so he would take his kid to Disneyland by buying a ticket to go to Disneyland. That, that makes sense, right? Like, just buy a ticket to go to Disneyland. But then he shows up with his daughter, and his daughter's been to birthday parties, and then Dwayne Wade, <laughs> Dwayne Wade rented the whole park. And he's like, oh, you didn't rent the park for your daughter? And like, I love, it's the comedian goes, well, you see, what had happened was I was trying to make sure I could transfer my savings to my checking, and then my checking to my, to, my, to my wallet, but I just didn't have time, so I couldn't rent the park out. You make all these excuses of why you're not as rich as the other person, and you start to see this other kind of richness that you never, you didn't think your life could actually experience. Catch this real quick. You think you're rich right now with how your life is? Kings think completely different the way you do. They're way richer. Remember hearing a silly story, and then we'll go on to the next point, but PJ Golfer asked a king, PJ Golfer came over and said, hey, I want to teach me how to play golf. He's like, okay, I'll teach you how to play golf. At the very end, the king, the king was uh, uh, a king in the uh, Middle East area. He goes, I want to buy you something, like to say thank you. And the golfer's like, okay, I, I don't know. Like, you know, buy me a golf club. You know, so he gets on the plane. He's like, maybe he's going to buy me like a, like a pitching wedge, maybe like a gold pitching wedge or like a diamond-plated driver. Would that be cool? And then finally, a few weeks later, he opens up the mail, and it's a deed to an actually a real golf course club. We don't even think that way because we haven't experienced that richness. You won't even dream. You will dream different when you start looking up. You will dream different restoration. You'll dream a different bar for your marriage, a different bar for your region. You want to know I believe in revival so much and I dream it? Because I look up all the time and I say, God, if people are being healed in heaven and they're whole in heaven, they can be healed here on earth and they can worship you here on earth. If holy, holy Lord God Almighty is happening in heaven 24-7, it can happen here in the Bay Area. This is my bar for my life. Next point. You got to look up, you got to look in. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I've got two more points, 20 minutes. Let's see what happens. Um, it's pretty good, though, right? Not bad, right? We're, we're, we're tracking? We're tracking? Okay. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And uh, I kind of already talked about the mourn, the light showing up. We'll, we'll kind of go there. Uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the whole earth. So you got to look in. You got to look in. So, so Jesus says, that blessed are those who mourn. And again, I, if I had more time, I, I would just spend a whole sermon on this part of mourning because I, the, there's nine Greek words, and the Greek word on mourning here, God uses the most intense word of mourning. We're talking like agonizing mourning over this sin. Because I think sometimes we look at sin like a little cold. We sometimes look at sin as an inconvenience in our life. Sin is not a little cold, nor is it an inconvenience. Sin destroys people's lives. It is a going to the doctor and getting a letter of a terminal sickness in your life. You would not be like, oh, it's just a little cold. No, you would weep over it saying, is there any way that I cannot have this terminal sickness? 
I've had best friends lose parents from terminal sickness, and they hate those sicknesses because they know what they do to families. And so blessed are those who realize what sin does to people. Because you think forgiveness is just something that inconveniences you? No, unforgiveness destroys marriages. Unforgiveness destroys lives. Unforgiveness destroys friendships. You think lust is just something that kind of tempts you? No, lust destroys marriages. It destroys the view of human beings. It destroys things. We should mourn over sin and what it does to a community. You think arrogance is just annoying? No, arrogance destroys regions and communities. It destroys people. Blessed are those who realize the things that will destroy them and don't want any part of those things. Happy are those people. And then happy are the meek. Now you're humble. You understand that you only have one life to live and that you can inherit the whole earth if you live with a humble posture, that this is now transformed, so it will transform your outside. I love what it says. It says, inherit the earth. How happy would you be if you just inherited the greatest life ever? Raise your hand. Who wants to inherit the greatest life? Okay, half of you. You're welcome. The other half, we'll pray for you. I feel like you're not really understanding the message today, okay? Um, it's cool. So anyways, um, have you ever seen prideful people? Prideful people are not happy. Prideful people lose out on so many things. Humble people reconcile. Humble people say sorry quickly. Humble people forgive. Humble people take a posture of, again, you may, the prideful people, you may think you've been winning in life, but all you're doing is losing. Prideful people love to win arguments, even religious arguments. Won the argument, that person now knows that they're going to hell. I did a good job, Jesus. You won the argument, but you lost the person. You may be with your spouse, and you're so prideful, and you can't say sorry, you want to justify it. And so you win the argument with your spouse. Yeah, uh, I got it. Uh, she knows what's up now. You're like, you may have won the argument, but you just lost respect from your wife. You just lost a day with your wife because now you've fought and you can't really talk. Trust me, I've, I've lived this. Rachel and I were leaving Napa about two years ago, and I love to leave on time, and I love being on time. Anybody love, who's on time, people? Thank you. Who loves just like not a clock? You're like, what is clock? What is day? You know, you're the person that comes in on the third worship song. We're working for you, okay? Come on now. <laughs> so anyways, so I love leaving on time. And so it's a Saturday. I'm preaching the next day, and Rachel's friends are in town. She goes, can we please go to Napa on Saturday? I was like, oh, I just, again, Saturday is I guard him. I want to prepare my, I want to be, I want to, Saturday is like a sacrifice to the Lord. I want to do a ton of fun things on Saturday, but I want to honor God so I rest, so I can be ready to run on Sunday for him. So it's a rest day. Once in a while, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I can do something on Saturday, but I really want to guard it. And so uh, I'm like, okay, we can go to Napa, but we have to leave at 4.45 p.m. in discussion. You promise? Like, we'll leave at 4.45. You can, you, yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. I said like four or five times. Now, we go to Napa, and there are friends there, and I'm sitting there, and I'll just fast forward for the sake of time. Um, and it's 4.44 and they still have the last glass on their tasting to still have. I'm not having any wine because wine's sinful. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I was driving and I'm a lightweight. Um, I can't even have a glass without being like, am I okay? Uh, anyways, so um, they still have one more glass and it's 444. Then 445 happens. And right at 445, I'm like, you promised me. <laughs> and like, even my, like everybody's having a conversation and I just literally check out like this. 4.50 happens. 4.55 happens. And finally, like, I kind of, like, nudge Rachel. She's like, you guys, go, girl. You guys, wrap it up. You know? 
So 5 p.m. happens. We get in the car, and I am, I am so mad. I'm like, I'm, 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 Ruth, Ruth. And all I want to hear is this. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I forgot the time. I promised you, and I didn't do it. I heard none of that, by the way. So I was like, you said 445. I, I, Rachel's gonna test this. We've married for seven years. I think I've yelled like seven times in our marriage. When I mean yell, I mean I talked intensely. I'm not a big yeller, okay? I believe that, you know, uh, you know, just you walk with the right authority, your wife will listen to you, okay? Anyways, so I very rarely yell, okay? So anyways, so Rachel, Rachel is not like saying like, she's like, what's the big deal? It's 50, I, I, I thought you said five. I was like, I said 445 like five times. And I made you promise. You're like, Tyler, it's 15 minutes. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm so, ah, you know, she goes, and then this is where you go to the next level. She goes, you're acting crazy. <laughs> when you say you're acting crazy, it just makes me want to be more crazy, okay? And I was like, yeah, no, it's not crazy. It's a respect thing. It's, you, you, you didn't honor what I asked. I'm so, ah. And so we're just yelling and talking very passionately. Italian wife, Tyler, one of his seven times being like, ah, okay. And then neither of us, neither of us like budge. We're just, she's like, gosh, 15 minutes. This guy's a weirdo, you know? And then, and then I'm thinking like, gosh, this woman doesn't respect her husband. This is devastating. I need to leave my house better. Okay, these are all things I'm thinking about, okay? So we just, we drive home. Nothing. I mean, just nothing. And this traffic was about an hour and a half drive. Get to the, get to the house. I'm preaching the next day on grace and forgiveness, by the way. <laughs> this is no joke. And I thought about it. I was like, my wife and I had a great day in Napa. Had a great day. And then she did one thing that just ticked me off. And I made it all about, like, me as a man, her not respecting what I do. I mean, I just took myself really serious at this moment, just to be honest. I gotta preach the word of God tomorrow. 15 minutes, hopefully I can still wake up, you know? It's like <laughs> 6 p.m. when I got home, by the way. So anyways, I looked at it and I was like, we lost an hour and a half of our marriage. We lost it. We didn't hear anything at that moment. Happier those who are humble and meek because they'll inherit a life that they never would have had without Jesus. In the world, you'll be prideful and you'll fight and you'll lose years over unforgiveness and taking yourself way too serious. Was my wife wrong? Yes. <laughs> I didn't need her to say sorry. I just knew it in my heart already. So I came up, I forgave her. I gave her a hug. And I was like, let's move past this. And, uh, and then we, like, we've, we've learned from it. I want to catch this real quick. Something that's holding you back right now from inheriting the things that God has for your life are these two things. You're, you're still walking to things that are making you sick. It's one of the first things. You're still walking to the things that make you sick. And the second thing is, is your stubbornness and your pride is keeping you stuck. It says that those who don't, bitter roots, roots literally stay in the ground. You don't even move. You can't even go inherit what God has for you because your pride's in the way. Humble people, Forgive quick. They live a light life. They don't take themselves too serious. They don't take people too serious. They just take God's business really serious. Forgiveness and grace and mercy, those things. Happier those people in those lives. Man, easily offended people. Talk about a tough week with them. It's hard for me to have a relationship with easily offended people. It's very hard for me to be easily offended because they want, me to get, they want me to get stuck with them all the time in their offense. I want to go inherit what God has for me. I don't have time to get offended. I just got time to receive the promises of God. Happier those who actually look in and realize 
I got to stop taking myself so serious. Amen? So you got to look up, you got to look in. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And the last part is you need to look out. You need to look out. I think it's fascinating, the look out part, because really what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is you get saved, and really this is the promise of your new life, a happy life. And so you experience this new bar of happiness, this new bar of a blessed life, this new purpose. And then this new thing you look up to, it starts to invade your soul in the best ways, sets you free in ways you never thought you could, and now it's transformed your life. And then the rest, part, the rest of the Beatitudes is all about going out. It doesn't promise that it's going to be just easy cake, easy, easy breezy, but what it does promise is that you are doing the things that God's called you to do, and that you have mercy, you give mercy. And so when you talk about the good news, and I wanted to finish on this message on purpose, is because you come to church, you look up, you worship God, you, you, you get blessed by the message, and then if, if you just stop there, I don't believe you'll have true fulfillment, true happiness. You, you won't. The Beatitudes show it. It says it's, it's a progression. It's a progression in your life. It's like links in the chain. It's, you cannot separate them. They're all supposed to be connected. And so when you have those things in your life and you decide to go, oh, I'm happy because I looked up. I'm happy because I understand that I need, uh, need to live, live life differently. I'm happy about that. But then you don't taste true happiness until actually you live the life of proclaiming the peace of God and the goodness of God to people. And some of you are like, well, I'm just not an evangelist. It's not about being an evangelist. It's about being actually what you're created to be. You're created to be a mouthpiece for the kingdom. Everybody in this room. All of you, you just don't know it. Fear has held you back. Fear has held you back. People who have said it to you, bad experiences have, have held you back. And so I wanted to look at a, um, another time in the Bible, another rhythm. It's in Isaiah 6, and it's a fascinating part of the Bible. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because this man, Isaiah, was a prophet. He had a wife and two kids. He was a prophet for about 50 years at this moment. King Uzziah has just died. King Uzziah was a very prosperous king. Uh, th that mark of Israel was marked by prosperity and expansion. Um, but King Uzziah didn't finish well, but, but his reign was a very prosperous, expanding time for Israel. So Isaiah is now mourning because, oh my gosh, what was prosperous and expanding, the leader that we had that was leading us there, he is now dead. And so Isaiah has this bar, and he thinks everything's great. And he's mourning over, you could say, the glory years. And so in Isaiah 6, it's this fascinating thing, because here's what you, you would think that he would come and go, God, there's 50 years of awesome. Can you send another awesomeness to us? But God doesn't want to just give him another 50 years of worldly prosperity. God wants to give him a new perspective of what real Real, real prosperity, real promises. And so God allows Isaiah to see the throne room of heaven, and it ruins him. So he looks up. Let's look at this, Isaiah 6. In this year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above them were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with the other two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the, uh, the doorpost and the threshold shook the temple and was filled with smoke. This is a moment of all moments. Isaiah, for the first time, sees how broke he is. You're going to see that in just a second. He sees how broke he is. He actually goes on to say, I'll just say it. He goes, woe to me, I cry, I am ruined. That woe word in Hebrew is, I'm doomed. This sickness I have, I thought I was, I thought I was good as a prophet. I thought I was doing everything right. But really, you got to understand, culture is like a very powerful stream, and living for God is like being a salmon swimming upstream. It's not going to be comfortable. Everybody's going to be going this way, and you've got to live this way. And it's going to, that's why he says pray for workers, not for coasters. And so he goes on to say, and this is, the, uh, catch this. Why does he see this, and why does he say, woe is me? Because this prosperity expansion, it was like, 
a veneer put on rotting teeth. I remember, I didn't know what veneers were. I moved to LA. They're very popular in LA, by the way, Hollywood. And I come into Dr. Macias, and this person leaves, and I say, hey, how are you? And they smile, and I was like, bing! And I was like, are those? Can you make my teeth that white and perfect? And he's like, well, yeah, they're called veneers. He's like, what's a veneer? And he started showing me pictures of people who had lost their teeth or uh, just had really bad teeth, so they would literally cut them down and then put the veneers over them, and the teeth could be rotten, and this was an option. The problem is, is the veneers that were over Israel's culture at this moment it wasn't like their roots were killed so they wouldn't have a problem from this rotting. It was just put over the rotting. And so Isaiah thought, everything's great, it looks beautiful. But no, externally it looked great, but eternally, like the, the veneers over teeth, Israel is rotting away in sin. And sometimes I think our life, because we have prosperity, we have things culture tells, tells us to do, and we look good, and we got the whatever and the ever, that we put a veneer over really what is rotting on the inside. And I think everybody needs to have an Isaiah moment in their life to where they go, I'm not okay. Just say it real quick, I'm not okay. It's okay to say. I don't know why it's so hard for us to say, God, I'm not okay. I'm not there yet, God. Can you help me get there? So he goes, woe is me. I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The reason why he's talking about the unclean lips and lips is because I'm a mouthpiece. I'm a prophet. A prophet represented being a mouthpiece. I'm a mouthpiece. What have I been talking about the last 50 years? Unclean. I'm not, I missed it. And some of you, you just got to be honest with yourself. I've missed it. I've lived for myself. I take myself too serious. I think I'm fine, but I'm not fine. I'll never be what I'm supposed to be unless I actually say that to myself and say, God, I'm ruined without you. And he's such a good God. This is the good news. He doesn't leave Isaiah there and shame him. He promises a savior. He promises a restorer. So here's what happens in Isaiah's life, and it's us also. So Isaiah looked up, and then he looked in. I'm doomed. I can't fix what this is. I can't fix this. I'm doomed. He looked in. So he looked up. He looked in. The one seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I don't know about you, but talk about a 180. I'm doomed. I'm done. And then he gets touched by the burning coal, redeemed, Shame gone. I love that it says the shame's gone. Like all shame. Can you imagine talking about your life and having no shame about it? Like all your life. I'm not talking about like work week. I'm not all your life. And then this is the fun moment. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God is proclaiming on behalf of heaven. Who will go for us to this unclean, this generation that looks like they're doing great, but they're rotting from sin on the inside. They're dying. Will anybody go? And Isaiah, he's looked up, he's looked in, and he's looked out. And I love Isaiah's response. It's an exclamation point. He says, here I am. Send me. And the church will never be great because of the seating capacity, but it will be great when people have this sending capacity where they say at church on a Sunday morning, here I am, send me this week. There's somebody rotting and dying next to me. 
and I'm not better than them. I just found the cure before them. And they can have what I have because I looked up and there's way more to life than what this world offers. Control, power, pleasure, whatever it is, it does not add, add to happiness. But Jesus, oh, he set me free. My marriage, my marriage is better because of Jesus. My, my life is better because of Jesus. Food is better because of Jesus. Every, you name it, it's better because of Jesus. My friendships are better because of Jesus. My, 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 what I get to do for a living, it's better because of Jesus. He just, this is what he does. So my question to you is, this week, I'm glad you came to church and you looked up and you worshiped. Hope you had some introspective time, you looked in and you go out. But really when the church gets real good is tomorrow morning, wake up and look up again. And say, God, raise the bar in my life. Raise everything, my, my expectations of happiness, of really what it is. Raise that bar in my life. Lord, now I look in. Lord, there's still things in my life. I don't talk to people and I judge people when I leave instead of looking at them like broken people. Why not judge and be judgmental, but I, may I look at them like you were. May I see gold today. Help me, Jesus. And Lord, I'm going out. Here I am. Send me. Do you bow your heads with me?